Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning. You've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. We're going to do something a little different for today's show. We're going to have a bit of a free-form discussion on current events in national security affairs. Joining us for these discussions are two professors who teach international relations. Some of you may recognize Professor Greg Marfleet from the Department of Political Science at Carleton College. Professor Marfleet has been a previous guest on our show. Greg is the Dorothy H. and Edward C. Congdon Professor of Political Science and Director of the Public Policy Program at Carleton College. He teaches courses in international relations, U.S. and comparative foreign policy, security studies, and political leader psychology, as well as classes in statistical and computational methodology. Our other guest is Professor Tony Lott from the Department of Political Science at St. Olaf. Professor Lott joined the department as an assistant professor of political science in 2005. He received his Ph.D. in international studies at the Graduate School of International Studies at the University of Denver in 2002. He's the author of Creating Insecurity, Realism, Constructivism, and U.S. Security Policy, and numerous articles in political science and law journals. His research interests include an exploration of norms and interests in international relations theory, cooperation in global environmental politics, and national and international security policy. Prior to his appointment at St. Olaf, Professor Lott taught at Portland State University, Hamlin University, and the University of Glasgow. Tony Lott, welcome to National Security This Week. Well, thanks very much, John. I appreciate that. It's yeah, it's always uh, fun to sit down with Greg, and nice to meet you. Yeah, it's good to have you on the show. And Greg Marfleet, welcome back to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. We have a lot to talk about today. We do have a, a full hour on our show. Uh, gentlemen, I thought we'd have a bit of an open discussion to, uh, based on what's happening around the world today. There's lots of things going wrong in the world, so we have lots of material to talk about. Uh, these are all situations that do impact American national security interests, either directly or indirectly. Uh, and I'd like to begin our discussions with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It seems to be in the news constantly. It is one the one thing that has the most direct impact on what's going on. Uh, it, it's what are your what are your respective thoughts on on the current situation with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Tony, I'll start with you. Oh, sure. Um, I, I don't think that we can underestimate the importance of this particular conflict. Uh, I think sometimes we professors get stuck in the mindset of looking at whatever's on the front page of, of the newspaper and that becomes the the issue du jour. But this is a particular issue that is challenging to the post-World War II global architecture. Yeah. It's a challenge to the way globalization has been acting in the last 20 years, even prior to the pandemic. Uh, it has implications for some of the most important and entrenched institutions uh, that we that we look to in the world for stability and security. So I um, I am real concerned about this particular conflict. I I don't think we can underestimate the implications for this short term and long term. Yeah, Greg. 
Yeah, I I totally agree with Tony. This is this is one of those um, watershed moments I think in in our sort of modern history that's changes the way we think about the world. And uh, you know, after nine eleven. Uh, American security focus and even international relations theory and foreign policy people started to focus more on non-traditional security threats, you know, non-state actors and as a security threat. And you, you could you could find articles, you know, and, and papers saying, you know, modern war is obsolete, you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And there was and and so to see you know, ground warfare occurring in Europe again is a little stunning. And I think um, a bit of a corrective for a lot of the thoughts that, you know, the world is moving towards this kind of like post, post-conflict post thing and uh, not, not, to, not withstanding the U.S. invasion of Iraq, I suppose, right? Which yeah. was, uh, but I think this is a bit of a wake-up call in terms of where our focus is on security questions again. And we're back to, and I think it is also, um, a challenge to what was kind of like the universal liberal order that we were kind of building and, uh, and, um, an, an articulation of a sort of new time of multipolarity. And that's what the Russians really want, I think, and the Chinese really want, and maybe both the Brazilians and, and the <laughs> Indians also want. And so yeah. I think that's, that's, uh, there's a couple of signals here about conflict and about, uh, power. I think what I just heard from both of you is a sort of a discussion on upsetting the the balance of the world order that has been in place since the end of World War II, uh, a, a, a time, you know, all of the structures that existed out there were better, very beneficial to the United States. And you have a lot of rising powers out there that say, hey, we want to change the rules a little bit. Uh, they may not do it directly, but they see what's happening with Russia and they say, hey, this, this is upsetting you know the old World War II post security uh, post World War II security order, and we could benefit from this because in confusion there is profit. <laughs> Maybe we should start with uh, let's start down sort of the tactical level, the battle space in 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 Ukraine. What's happening on the ground? Maybe what you see, and then we'll, let's let's branch out and, and consider kind of what the ramifications are to the broader region, and then maybe the third and fourth order impacts on the world from this conflict. Uh, what, Tony, what do you see happening on the ground right now in Ukraine that is particularly of interest? Well, Greg made a, an interesting point about um, this new land war in Asia. I'm, I'm reminded of the old Princess Bride line, right? <laughs> uh, don't start a, a land war in Asia. Um, and the Russians are finding that out yeah. in, in a pretty horrific way. And I, I, so I, I think one of the things that I've been noticing is that there are instances of, of old World War I sorts of behavior, trench right. warfare yeah. in the east part of Ukraine right now, yeah. which... Um, it's 2022. I didn't think that we would see that again. Yeah. Um, so that's surprising to me that we're seeing the Russians hunkered down in, in long trenches between fields and, and trying to, to protect themselves in ways that are just not working with the, with the equipment that the Ukrainians have right now. Um, I am seeing a, a tentative move by the Ukrainians to move east, and it's hard to tell because we just don't have good information right now as to how well that's going and what the objectives are. Um, so I, those, those are two issues that, to me right now, I think are, um, are interesting to watch. And then as, as we watch, uh, Greg brought up kind of these other security issues, the, the human security issue right mm -hmm. now, watching Ukrainians being moved out of the region, both right. into Russia as well as trying to make their way back to to safer Ukrainian lines. Um, yeah. It's a it's a very sobering, sobering thing to watch right now. Yeah, 
Greg, how about you? Yeah, you know, um, there's a, there's a, an international relations theory angle to this, whether you want to go down that uh, down that rabbit hole. But one of the arguments that uh, has been made over time is about rationality in international politics. Are states rational actors? And uh, is war a rational activity? And the arguments generally have been something along the lines of war shouldn't really occur because before a war occurs, each side should be able to look at the capabilities of the other and then arrive at some agreement that would avoid war, knowing what the outcome is going to be based on the relative strengths. And I think, you know, the Ukraine invasion throws that out the window. Uh, (laughs) Clearly, you know, the Russians were like 10 times more powerful than the Ukrainians on paper, right? Uh, And then it didn't work out that way. And why is a great question, you know, uh, what did Putin expect? I think it goes back to um, the Euromaidan crisis, 2014, you know, uh, um, Yanukovych, the election, and then his sort of being deposed. And I think the Russian reading of that was that maybe there was more division in the Ukrainian society than than there is. And when they invaded, they didn't expect the the resistance to be quite as strong as it was. And then Ukrainians seem much more unified and much more willing to fight than I think that he thought that the society would indicate. They had a different reading on the politics of it, I think. And now they're in a situation where they haven't been able to make any inroads militarily. Uh, they did at first, and now they're kind of on the backside of that, and they're, the counteroffensive from the Ukrainians is, is, is pushing hard, and we'll see how far that goes, whether they can take Crimea back. You know, right, that yeah. would be, that'd be stunning. What a stunning loss that would be to have that occur. But where I think the rationalists on international politics get it right is that war is a bargaining ex- exercise, and it really is about um, signaling your resolve and uh, establishing a position for negotiations. And maybe we're in that situation now where the Ukrainians uh, in their counteroffensive are going to push the Russians back far enough, maybe take Crimea, Maripol, parts of, of Donbass back which could force the Russians to the bargaining table, right? And say, look, okay, we've we've failed. This is turning really bad. And before it gets any worse, we're going to negotiate. I think it's interesting that the international community has not done things like uh, charged uh, Putin and Russia with crimes of aggression, right? That Tony's the international law expert. I'll (laughs) I'll defer to him on this. But, but, you know, that hasn't happened. And that hasn't happened for a reason, right? Right. Uh, no, I think that's exactly right, Greg. And I, I keep on trying to figure out what the end game is here. And how does Russia get, how does Putin get Russia out of this particular mess? And there has been sufficient restraint by the international community not to charge him with crimes of aggression, although we hear it all the time from various actors, right? Um, and uh, to keep the ICC out of the situation as much as possible. So uh, there is a, a way here that you can see the the vestiges of this post-World War II architecture attempting to find a way through the, the current situation. Try to keep the norms Try that to keep we've the established norms. over That's the last right. 25, 30 years. That's right. It'd be yeah. interesting to think about who might be the interlocutor or the intermediary that might be able to pull off these negotiations at the end. I mean, now, it, Turkey has inserted themselves pretty effectively into a lot of the negotiations so far. And I think their position sort of vis-a-vis NATO of being in but not entirely in and and the relationship they built with the Russians signals that they might be the actor that could do that. But 
that would they'd have to be seen as kind of like that neutral arbiter on on some of this, or at least a, a, a an entity that can bring together the mm-hmm. sides. But we're still a long way, I think, away oh, yeah. from that, and <laughs> and uh, and, a, and a lot of human suffering away from that too. Yeah. So yeah. Let, let, let's let's expand out a little bit from the just the battlefront right there in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, how do you see this playing out, kind of regionally, say from the EU perspective, or uh, more broadly with uh, the other the other nation states and what's referred to as Russia's near abroad, right? Uh, any thoughts on that? Well, Greg brought up the idea of rational choice theory and rational actor models of, of international relations. And I, I think that one could make the claim that Putin was looking at this situation and thinking, how can I, how can I weaken the EU mm-hmm. given uh, allies or um, certainly those who have certain affinities for his policies in in Hungary and and elsewhere uh, in the EU and how can i divide the, the the kind of the southern asian region as well and he really made a mistake yeah. i mean to, you know i don't know how we can yeah. we can uh, yeah. we we can't we can't overstate that uh, this was a, a clear mistake this unified the eu um, in ways that i don't think anybody in international relations or in public affairs would have thought possible uh, it brought sweden and finland into nato uh, it oh. it did things that uh, no one was even contemplating uh, in international relations the germans increased their defense budget the right. germans increased their defense <laughs> budget that's yeah. right exactly when, when you can trigger that kind of activity that's yeah. pretty pretty severe and you know i, I think um Putin just recently came out with his Putin doctrine. I don't know if you saw that. And it's the, uh, he sort of listed a bunch of things that uh, Russia wants to do. Uh, I, it's, I, it's not available in English, so I'm relying on some translations to this. But, you know, one of the things, increase uh, the, the global perception, improve the global perception of Russia was on his list. Well, this clearly is not working. I mean, they've got some. But one of the things that he uh, emphasized was Slavic, Slavic unity. Mm-hmm. So there's still, I think, aspirations to try to pull the Slavic states out of the EU orbit. You know, that's that's still present there for him. And I, and um, but I, you know, Tony's right. The unity we see in the West right now is probably stronger than it's been in a long time. I, I think it it speaks to the interesting question about NATO in particular. We may talk more about that. But you know, I, if anybody out there who's paying attention to sort of the IR literature or, or the figures may have heard of a guy named John Mearsheimer, right? And uh, Mearsheimer was one of those people who was a NATO skeptic for a long, long time, and. Uh, it's his commentary on some of this is interesting in in that um, I don't think he expected NATO to stick around after the end of the Cold War, and now it's expanding, right. which runs totally counter to <laughs> yeah. everything he had claimed yeah. was going to occur. And you have to ask, like, why? And is it now it's back to security issues again, right? right. And uh, so the notion that NATO was obsolete was sort of predicated on the idea that Russia was tamed, and and uh, it wasn't, you know. And I think that's. Uh, um, it's a, an important lesson, I think, for international relations, American foreign policy. Uh, just because the world looks the way it does now doesn't mean it's going to look that way in 10 or 20 years, right? And we might see changes in the domestic politics in India, China, Brazil, Russia, or other places that are of uh, security concerns. And so you have to be constantly aware of where the capabilities are, what the what the potential threats are, and uh, never stop to think that we, we, we've conquered the world or that you know the world's a safe place. Necessarily. Yeah, it's a constantly changing environment out yeah. there. And, and every single, it's sort of like uh, when I teach uh, a course on uh, policy and strategy uh, kind of a thing, I try to explain to the students that 
every nation that's out there is a is a chess grandmaster. <laughs> and you know how grandmasters will play, you know, 30 or 40 people at the same time? Well, now you're really talking on the international stage. Everybody's a chess grandmaster, and they're all playing chess against each other <laughs> all the time, <laughs> seeking, you know, advantage on, on the chessboard. Uh, very quickly for our audience here, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf and Professor Greg Marfleet from Carleton College, and we're discussing current national security affairs around the world. Uh, so you had mentioned, Greg, uh, NATO, uh, you know, really back to a strong security framework. Uh, I do want to cover that a little bit more as we as we move through our discussions today. But I would like to shift over to uh, to Iran. Mm. Uh, we are maybe close to having a new Iranian uh, nuclear deal. Uh Let's talk a little bit about that. Is this, considering all the other things that are going on in the world, especially the Ukraine situation, the challenges with uh, with China and Taiwan, some instability uh, across Africa, which we'll talk about, I think, a little bit, and then uh, all the other things that are happening, is this a good time for the Biden administration to be f- so focused on you know achieving a new Iranian uh, nuclear agreement? I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the world. Is this a, a good use of the Biden administration's time and resources to, to achieve a new nuclear agreement? Uh, I'll, I'll kick it to either one of you who wants to start. Well, thanks, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and yeah. you have to play the, the hands you're dealt. Yeah. yeah. So I think given that if, if we think about this as a, as a long game and we've, we put together some, some program to deal with Iran uh, during the, the Bush and then Obama administrations, there's the, the hiccup in the, during the Trump administration, and now we're going to continue the game. How do we put those pieces back together and and find a way to and this goes back to the context of that liberal international order that we were just talking about with Ukraine and Russia. If you're playing by those rules, if if the if the norms are still the post-World War II liberal international norms, then how do you bring Iran back into the fold after 1979, which is what we're still dealing with. We're still dealing yeah, with 1979. Right. Yeah. yeah. For, for America, I think that's absolutely true. That's There's a psychological component for many people in our country yeah. of still we're still very angry about the 79 revolution and, and taking our hostages uh, yep. at the U.S. Embassy. That's right. Yeah. And I think that 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 last point, taking the embassy, right, that was a that went against international law, that went against international norms. And so how do you bring Iran back in in a way that will work? And so that's where we are right now. Um, I think you have to continue playing the game, but I, it, you know, it's tough, and this is not the right time to be playing it. Yeah, yeah, I generally agree. I think um, the adage of all politics being local kind of throws itself in here. You know, this is, um, in some ways, I think Biden's pursuing this because Trump abandoned it, and some of the people in his circle want to see us get back on track, and it might be a political win for Biden. You know, publicly it polls well. Would a nuclear agreement with Iran be a good idea? Yeah, generally. And so this might be something going into the midterm elections that, that could be counted as a success. But, um, yeah, I think the timing of it is probably not the best. And I, the danger is, I think, that Russia has tried to interject itself into the nuclear negotiations in a big way. And, you, you yeah. know, and I think they're using it uh, largely as a way of trying to maybe um, – 
join in and get to really close to an agreement and then at the last minute maybe try to throw in a demand for some sanctions reduction or yeah. something along those lines in order to get something for them. Like what's in it for the Russians to contribute to you know nuclear nonproliferation in the Middle East? They actually have some advantage in terms of selling weapons to Iran and other things like that. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm afraid that the timing's not the greatest, the reasoning may not be the greatest, and the potential for sort of Russian slippage on some of this stuff through interference is some an, a door that's been opened that's probably not the best plan. Yeah, Iran has long been sort of a, a client state of uh, of Russia, as much like Syria has been a client state of Russia for a very long time. I, I'll throw this at you, at both of you. Uh, we know that the Iranians have sort of been moving back in the direction of, uh, of, of you know, really moving forward on their nuclear program. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israel, of course, is deeply concerned about it, that advancement. Is part of this move on the part of the Biden administration to prevent Israel from attacking Iran, to prevent them from actually carrying through on establishing a nuclear program? Because yeah. here, here's my thinking. Yeah, thing yeah. The United States has been trying to get out of the Middle East for a right. very long right. time. Yeah. And we continuously get pulled back in for various reasons, strategic reasons, right. economics driven for the most part. And if Israel attacks Iran, now you're talking about potentially a major conflagration all across the Middle East. Uh, what, what do you think? Is that, I mean, that, is that a strategic calculation on the part? I of wonder the if the Israelis would be restrained at all. I don't you know, think they would. I think that the first part of it is like, would even if this happens, if Israel sees a threat, they're going to act on it That's in right. any case. So, yeah. so it might put them in a position where they don't quite have the high ground on this and say, oh, we're going to attack. Well, we just came up with an agreement. You should not. But, um, but I don't think it would hinder them. No, I, I I agree, and I go back to John's point about about playing chess. Yeah. Right, we're looking at a number of different chess games going on for local reasons, like you said, Greg. Uh, but a number of different chess games, and in some ways, they're still connected to the Ukraine Russia issue because yeah. you, Russia okay. is involved in this particular situation, and I yeah. think uh, they are going to use whatever influence they have to to complicate the problem. And yeah. I wonder a little bit whether maybe the energy dimension of this matters as well. I mean, if we can get to uh, a situation where Iran's sort of playing by the norms to some degree, right, we can lift some sanctions. And in the current kind of energy crunch that we're facing with uh, with Russian oil and gas being cut off, we would open up another potential source of it. I, I'm not sure if anybody's thinking along those lines. That might be the one kind of thing we might get as a benefit out of this. Europe, Europe clearly needs to diversify its energy sources, right? right? They, and they're working on that. They are working on it, right? And I think that's going to make, we're going to talk a little bit later a little about Africa, and I think that's going to come up there as well. You know, the um, the the drive from energy outside of Russia is going to be a big deal, and it's going to drive politics in, in Africa, I think, as well. Um, but I wonder if maybe at the back of the minds of some, that if we can get a deal with the Iranians, we might be able to get a little bit more out of the, the Middle East in terms of energy production and stability and stuff like that. But that's a long way off, too. So. I think geopolitically, if you if you look at, at Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, it's always been problematic not to have the yeah, United States yeah. interested in Iran, right? Which takes us back to 79. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the problems that that then caused. But you know, if, when you look at the population and and the energy capacity and all of the issues that, just from a geopolitical standpoint, the United States might want to consider, um, it, it's it's problematic that we don't have a better relationship with Iran, and and yeah. it complicates yeah. so many other issues in that region. Yeah, the, the the Middle East region to me has been this. I mean, it's such a 
such a complex situation overall. I mean, there, there, there are at this point three countries really jockeying for hegemony in the region. It used to be just two, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Right. But clearly, uh, Turkey has inserted themselves as a major player, not just in the Middle East region, where they would like to have a great deal more influence, but in North Africa as well. Yeah. So, and, you know, Israel is always figuring into the equation there. Yeah. Uh, UAE, so, lately yeah, UAE, too. Yeah. They've become a kind of a wild card with military That's capabilities, right. and right. they're involved yeah. in Ethiopia, and they're involved. It's, uh, yeah. It is it's, it's way more complicated, yeah. you know. Yeah. Actually, to build on Tony's point, I think one of the interesting things that we, we may not be I don't know, attuned to enough is the way that these regional powers like Iran have aspirations for kind of regional hegemony or regional influence, right? Spheres of influence was sort of the terminology that gets played around with during the sort of multipolar eras. And, and there was some degree of respect for the, the, the spheres of influence of the other great powers. And you can see Russia's activity in the Ukraine, you know, as a, we wanted to establish a sphere of influence. We're going to try to create a sort of puppet regime. And, and it didn't work out electorally, so now we have no choice but to go and do it the other way. And I think Iran is the same way. The Saudis are the same way, trying to establish spheres of influence in the region. Uh, and, you know, I think we may have to come to a point where we say, look, we understand the Iranians have, want a sphere of influence. And if you want to take over Afghanistan politically, you know, and deal with that mess, that's your problem. Right. And yeah. and uh, we know you're in Syria and we know you're in Iraq. And, and so let's just sit and talk about how we want this all to play out for the benefit of all of us and stability, right? And I, 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 we're not at that stage, I think, where we're ready to play the great power game and start to recognize that. Maybe with China, we're seeing it too, you know? China's going to develop its sphere of influence. We keep resisting it in the South China Sea sure. and, and Taiwan, right? But I think um, whether we can switch the mindset towards that kind of a world or not, or whether we want to, that's very... It's a very kind of Machiavellian, you know, world of great power politics, but we may be headed there. It is. And had this conversation happened a year ago, we would not be talking about this realpolitik, sphere of influence, right, Machiavellian right. world. We would still be talking about how institutional capacity is growing and and there are attempts to kind of create this this much more globalized, uh, interdependent world. Right. Um, so I, I think it is a, a moment to reflect on what has happened just yeah. in the last six yeah. months. Yeah, the, the, whole, the Russian invasion of Ukraine really fundamentally changed, changed the world. The deck, yeah. it really it did. did. Yeah. I mean, I would say, and I've said this, uh, you know, to other people in private conversations, the whole the knowledge amongst the national security community that there was this struggle between the liberal democratic order, the sort of the post World War II international security framework and sort of the rising autocratic nations of the world, that was sort of like below the tabletop. Right. Everybody kind of knew what was going on, right. but nobody was really, they didn't really want to talk about it. That's right. And now it is absolutely out there above the tabletop. Everybody sees it. It's, it's there across the world. And the struggle that's taking place right now, whoever wins gets to write the new rules for the world order. Right. <laughs> so who do we want to win that struggle, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and it's happening at a time when the world should probably be paying significant attention to some other issues, which are security-related as well, yeah. um, like global climate change, right? right? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's coming at a time when we're not looking at, at 1850 or 1950. We're looking at a world yeah. that, that is... And, and the scary thing is most of these autocratic nations that we're talking about, uh, most of them, their entire economy is based on oil and natural gas. That's right. Right? right. Yep.
which means that they can't survive if we change over from from those fuel sources for energy. Uh, it's an interesting question to think about, like what kind of world order Russia would build or China would build compared to the, the liberal order that the United States and its allies built after World War II. It seems to be a much more clientelistic kind of model, right? Again, the sort of spheres of influence, you know, Russia doesn't want a world order. Russia wants its interests and, and its clients and its vassal states. And China is doing the same thing. It's going to buy its way into Africa and, and establish those, you know, and uh, that's a good transition. Uh, that's maybe. a f- yeah. fantastic transition because I wanted to ask both of you about uh, about Africa. Uh, if, we, if we look at Africa, we're seeing significant instability across many parts of Africa, more, more than we've seen across the continent in some time. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll have uh, Dr. Mark Dietz on the show to discuss the Nile River Basin specifically. Uh, but what do the two of you think about the influence of Russia and China on the politics and the security situation in Africa right now? Uh, we all know that the Wagner Group, which is a sort of a Russian uh, mercenary force. Uh, they're, they're not, I mean, they're listed as a private military contractor, but they specifically do the bidding of the Kremlin wherever they're sent. Uh, they're hard at work putting down political opposition in some nations. Uh, the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda uh, adherents are still stirring up a great deal of trouble uh, across the continent. And we've seen coup attempts in, Russia, in, in, Af- in Africa, different countries in Africa. Some of them have been successful. Uh, which nations in Africa have your greatest attention right now? Greg, I'll start with you. Oh, okay. Well, um, you know, the the United States just recently produced a U.S. strategy for Sub-Saharan Africa, released in August 2022. So it's like hot off the presses. And, and you know, in many ways, it's the, what you'd expect to see. You know, we want to foster open societies. We want uh, we want to foster democracies for the potential security dividends. Uh, we want to help rebuild after the pandemic and uh, and support conservation and climate. Those are like the top four lists. And it's a, I think it's aspirational, but a little naive, that document, you know, <laughs> um, uh, they, it's clear that, um, regimes in, in, in a little bit of sort of back to back to the future in Africa. There's a lot of talk about the, the future of Africa, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago and economic growth. And everybody thought we're going to get the sort of post cold war peace dividend and, and Africa is going to finally emerge out of the cold war problem. The, the, the proxy fights that were going on there and that we were going to see an African century. Right. And now we're kind of back to where we were and it's, and it's these sort of the meddling of the great powers to some extent, and um, and and it's also cor- you know essentially kind of corrupt regimes who uh, rather than sort of take the U.S. position about democracy and openness, or rather they would take let's take the Chinese money and let's take the Russian arms and let's you know do our thing and not have to worry about international norms and human rights and and democracy and openness and all the things that are troubling for us because we want to maintain our kleptocracies or our, our corrupt regimes. And so, you know, there's a number of places. Uganda recently, you know, uh, has sort of cozied up with China on a number of issues, despite the fact that we supported their government for 30 years. Now they're, you know, buying Russian arms. Um, the places that are really troubling are, for me, are Ethiopia is, is I think, a there's been an ongoing civil conflict to grand forces in Eritrea versus the Omara and uh, um, uh, Omoro, Omoro and, and Amharan people. And um, the, the, again, that's one where Russian arms and Chinese money are, you know, fomenting a civil conflict to some degree. And they're both benefiting from that, that uh, um, 
chaos that's being generated there and the humanitarian the potential humanitarian danger of that situation is enormous because you may have read of you know Somalia is currently experiencing drought conditions and the the knock-on effects of the Ukraine invasion with regard to uh, global food prices and wheat exports are hitting hard in those regions and if we see uh, an emergence of more conflict there in combination with a with a climate induced famine we're we're back to the 90s we're back to you know yeah. um mass starvation in the horn of africa that's very dangerous so keeping track of that uh, uh of of what's going on in ethiopia i think should be at one of the top of our list yeah. do you want to do another one and or go, go ahead I, well john i was afraid at, at some point during this conversation i would follow greg <laughs> and his encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of a, of a region and then have to, mm-hmm. to to talk about it i i will say i i am looking at somalia I, there are a few kind of bellwether states that i'm looking at across a very vast right. and uh, expansive and and divergent um continent but I, I'm looking at Somalia and looking at the the humanitarian crisis that I think we're we're seeing unfold right now. Um, there was this brief moment just at the end of last year where it appeared that Somalia was actually beginning to kind of entrench right. some of its um, institutional uh, foundations in a, in a way that was going to make it a success story. A success story for this decade. Um, it had just completed a an ICJ, an international court of justice case with Kenya over a maritime dispute. Things were looking good that way. So internationally, it had a little bit of gravitas. Um, and internally, it, it, was, it was seeming to coalesce around this idea of, of statehood. Um, and now we're looking at a, a famine yeah. and a food crisis that, that could rival that of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And that, I think, is, is really going to be difficult. Um, and, and, the, and then, of course, the internal political disruptions that are occurring as a result of that and for other reasons. So Somalia is a is a state that I'm I'm concerned about. Um Greg mentioned Uganda. I'm always interested in the Democratic Republic of Congo right. just because of its mineral wealth and and the vastness of that state. Um so I, I look there to to see how security issues are, are gonna be dealt with. Um yeah. The other thing to keep on the radar is the way energy is going to play out. Yep. This, yep. this global energy crisis is going to have geostrategic implications. That's right. And one of them I think that we might want to follow is Libya. Mm-hmm. So Libya uh, came out of the Arab Spring and was sort of enmeshed in this East versus West civil conflict, right, for quite a while. And then in 2020, 2021, they formed a national unity government. And then they delayed elections. And then there was... Um, internal struggle between the par- the ones who control the parliament and the presidency, and they elected a new prime minister, and the president rejected that person, and so they're they're stuck. There's a sort of east-west division in Libya. Now, if you look at Libya, it's one of the major energy suppliers in in Africa, and uh, in t- 2010, before the Arab Spring. They were exporting something like 10,000 cubic meters of natural gas every year. And then after the Arab Spring and during the conflict, that dropped to like three or 4,000 cubic meters a year. So a huge cut in energy. And they've just started to increase supply again. So they hit 8,000 this year, which is almost to the the pre-Arab Spring level. And uh, I think BP just sold out to an Italian firm. And so there's clearly like new investment occurring there. But... 
whatever is holding that country together right now might not hold together for long and we could be seeing that again and then a diminishing you know energy thing i think energy is going to drive it energy in nigeria energy in libya uh energy in you know equatorial guinea and the countries that, that produce oil not to mention the mineral wealth this africa is a place where there's going to be a lot of contestation to access that energy who's going to control it is it going to be china is it going to be the europeans and how is political stability or instability going to play into supply disruptions this is big stuff. And I agree. I, no, I think that's right. And, you know, we talked earlier about the unity of the EU, but when you kind of peel away the onions skins it, you, and, you, and you kind of see how it is that the European Union is attempting to manage the current energy crisis. So what is Germany doing? What are the Nordic countries doing? Um, what is France doing? And so some states are interested in restarting their nuclear facilities. Yeah. Germany just extended the life of two of their nuclear plants. That's right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. France too. Um, yeah. And France, exactly. Yeah. And then the Iberian Peninsula and Italy, they're looking down to North Africa now, yep. right? And so they're thinking of how can we get the, the carbon um, up into the, to, into the European supply. So it's, it's interesting to watch how, even though there is unity and there isn't conflict as a result of this, but it's interesting to watch how they have different um, policies with respect to how to manage these energy issues. And it's going to be a long winter. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. key. They're scrambling right now to make sure that they have a reliable supply heading into the winter because they know, well, two things. They know they can't rely on the Russian supply and that's they right. don't want to rely right. on the Russian supply. That's exactly right. They're trying to cut that off. Talk about yeah. like back to the future. I don't know if you re recall the, the 80s discussion about uh, the early pipelines the, mm -hmm. to Europe for the mm -hmm. Russians mm -hmm. and, you know, the Export Control Acts that the Reagan administration put in place. And there was concern that, you know, the that uh, if Russia, if the Euro, if, Euro, if Western Europe at the time becomes dependent on Russian oil, they'll have a handle to the pan, you know, on on, on European politics. And I mean, we're back, we're yeah, back. It's yeah. like the Cold War again in some ways, you know. It, well, that, it is. The way the Ukraine invasion just, just sort of transformed us and, and in some ways kicked us back to a to a pre you know end of the Cold War world as a one of you know geostrategic rivalry again. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, both of you mentioned this earlier, but if we go back very briefly to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the speed with which uh, the liberal democracies of the world acted to, to punish Russia for this, to, the sanctions and whatnot, it was just remarkable. And it has caused, I think, a fundamental shift in thinking about, well, how, who do we want to do business with, right, yeah. around the world? And the, the sanctions might lead to... Uh, less of a globally integrated economy and more to maybe a regionally integrated economy around the world for reliable su supply chain purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the heavy reliance that the United States has had on China, uh, maybe we're realizing that that's probably not a good idea. And maybe it's not a single regional supply chain, but overlapping regional supply chains mm -hmm. that give you diversity in the supply chain and resilience in the supply chain based on potential disruptions that are out there. Uh, very briefly for our audience, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf and Professor Greg Marfleet from Carleton College. And we're discussing current national security affairs around the world. Uh, anything else that uh, either of you want to talk about with regards to Africa? Well, I mean, I think Africa is indicative of something that I think we're going to see in a bunch of places, and yeah. that is this the sort of reemergence of this Cold War. It's Russia. It's the West. 
that narrative is, it, as it was in the Cold War, going to be resisted, right? There's the, there was always the non-aligned movement that said, hey, we really don't want to have to make a decision in this fight, right? And so while this is going on in Europe uh, and we're asked to um, respect the sanctions or comply with the sanctions regime, we really don't want to do that. We, we want to continue to buy Russian arms and oil. We want to continue, you know, and China is kind of that way too. They don't really want to get, you know, too deeply involved in this. They want to continue their business. And um, so I think uh, it's a little, again, the back to the future thing. We're going to see the sort of non-aligned thing happening as, as well. And you know maybe that's uh, part of the new global economy is a recognition of of some of this. Um, yeah. Any thoughts, Tony? Well, I think that's right. I I, th I also think that what we're seeing is. Uh much more sophisticated set of state actors in Africa mm -hmm. too. And that goes along with what you were saying, Greg, but they, um, they, one, they have the ability to, uh, to manage their diplomatic relations among other states now in a way that they just didn't have during the confines of the of the Cold War, um, and in in many instances, I think that they have a, a much more um, developed set of institutional components within the state. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what we're seeing is is a, a very diverse group of states acting in a in a in a much more um, uh, multi multilateral way, right? Um, and and so for me, that's it's it's interesting to watch. I, I but I don't have any conclusions for you, right? Because right? yeah. I just don't know where yeah. some of these foreign policies are are then going to take these states. Yeah, what I find really interesting about it is that you know you just had pretty much a peaceful transition of power in Kenya. Yeah, right. Kenya right. is a really important nation yeah. across the African Union. It is right because they, I mean, they are sort of a holdover from the old days of the of the British Empire. But they have they have really embraced the traditions of liberal democracy as as how they hold their elections. South Africa is a really influential country. Egypt is maybe not, uh, you know, a great example of true democracy, but they're very stable, stable and very influential in the region. Uh, the right. African Union actually signed an agreement not long ago about establishing a free trade region yeah. all across Africa. That's right. huge. I mean, yeah. if they can break down some of the individual you know, border challenges, That's they right. could create their own, mm -hmm. essentially, like the European Union yeah. as yep. far as the trade, trade yeah. goes. And they're taking the lead on the Ethiopian peace yeah. talks as well. That's they, right. They that's want right. a sort of African solution to the problem. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, maybe that's the sort of the void created by some of the Western... Uh, tensions in the Western and, and Russian and Chinese in, environment is mm -hmm. going to create an opportunity for for sort of new political orders to emerge. That's uh, right. Yeah. You know, generically out of the. Yep. And in West Africa, we have Sierra Leone, which right. came out of what was a devastating war um, and has put itself back together and and has the opportunity to to provide some some leadership in that region yeah. of the world, too. Well, yeah, with 50-some countries across the African continent. <laughs> each one is its own unique story. That's right. And yeah. They're all fascinating. Yeah. But we only have about uh, 16 minutes or so left. Okay. I want to very briefly cover uh, Myanmar, and then we move on to China, I think. How, how do you see the situation in Myanmar playing out in the near term and the long term? Uh, maybe talk about some of the influences uh, on the military junta in Myanmar and why those influences matter to American national security interests. Tony, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, John, I, I think one word, China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, if, if, we're, if we're looking at influences on the junta, um, it seems to me that, that China has uh, an oversized hand here to play, and, and they're going to play it. And what we saw over the last 
three three years is a, a realignment with Chinese interests, mm-hmm. and I think. Um, I don't know that I have that much to say about the trajectory of Myanmar without discussing the Chinese context and, and what it is that the Chinese want out of the situation. Mm-hmm. As we come out of the, the COVID situation and as we get the supply chains that we were just talking about back into some working order, I think we're going to see um, that that relationship between China and Myanmar solidified even more. That, that's just my hypothesis, Greg. I don't know what no, your thoughts I, are. I, mean, I think M- Myanmar is China's Ukraine in some ways, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's um, they the Ch- China's biggest concern geostrategically is India for the most part, right? right? And right. and that's been a long-standing conflict, and they came to blows, I guess, uh, a year ago, roughly. Was it? Uh, no shots were fired, but you know that and. Um, I think I see, you know, great powers establishing buffer zones, and yep. I think that's what's happening with China and Myanmar, and that yeah. they're going to do what they can to create this buffer. They don't want that country to be in the sphere of the Indians for sure, right. and so they're going to establish their their boundaries and border states, and that's what's happening. And it, it's pretty tragic, you know, in, in terms of what Aung San Suu Kyi just sentenced to three more years of labor, you know, on top of seventeen years of sentence already, so. There's no indication that the military regime is in any any way moving towards liberalization. It's getting more and more extreme and cracking down more and more and more and more violent. All that adding up to a pretty dismal situation. But yeah, it's great power politics again. And I don't see the U.S. playing uh, a role in trying to move the junta back towards that liberal democratic order. Not openly. No. <laughs> no. no. That's no. right. There might be other things going on. That's right. There. Yep. But both of you bring up a good point. It's really uh, China is the key player uh, in, on, on that stage in Myanmar. But China is also a key player elsewhere. We have a lot. Let's spend the rest of the show today talking about sort of the, the tensions that, that are between the U.S. and China. And, and Chinese regional influence uh, it, it, around their uh, around their country. Where, where do things go from here? I mean, uh, the policy strategy, match, the match that the U.S. needs to establish to ratchet down tensions right now, because they are pretty high between yeah. the U.S. Yeah. and China, yeah. and yet still provide security to Taiwan. We just saw a $1.1 billion arms deal with Taiwan where we're going to send them uh, some pretty, pretty high-end sophisticated weaponry. Uh, Taiwan is a nation with a really high-functioning, democratically elected government. Mm-hmm. They're a nation that's critical to the international microchip industry. I mean, and everything relies on microchips today. Yeah. Uh, where, where do you guys see this going? I mean, maybe frame it kind of what you see happening right now, and then maybe we come up with some solutions for how we ratchet down tensions. Uh, Tony, why don't we start with you? Well, I, I've always been persuaded as, a, as an IR scholar towards the realist perspective, yeah. which, is, which is really based on um, power and interests of states. Uh, but I, 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 I don't know who it was that, um, that used this phrase, but, but someone years ago used the phrase that realists were the cautious paranoids of international <laughs> relations. Um, they were always cautious in the fact that they, they were reticent to use the equipment that they had, right? The, 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 oper- the military and economic resources that they had. And, but they saw security threats under every rock and behind every tree. Mm-hmm. And if we take that vision of what's going on into, into the Chinese-U.S. relationship right now, especially in the East China Sea, uh, it seems to me that that this is playing out in a way that I really, really wish it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah? Um, and I, I am 
I'm concerned about the fact that uh, neither side is willing to sit down and have an open dialogue around a table seriously about these um, issues. Rather, we're going to signal with some really impressive weaponry. <laughs> yeah. And and I, it, it just seems to me that if, again, I probably a cautious paranoid myself, but um, I'm concerned about the use of, of some of the instruments that we're using to signal our diplomatic interests. And when I say we, I mean the United States and China yeah. um, in this particular region. De- over. Deterrence heavy in the, in the yeah. communication that I think we're That's seeing. That's right. right? Yeah. That's right. Exactly. You know, again, come back to all politics is local, right? I think China's facing some serious domestic headwinds. They are. Right? Yeah. Uh, They've had this incredible heat wave, the, the uh, record-setting temperatures and uh, drought, and drought, and exactly yeah. drying up rivers, and, and then they're still dealing with a lot of COVID lockdown and and uh, post-pandemic rebuilding, and their economy uh, has started to get that diminishing returns effect where they, you can't grow at ten percent forever, and no. so they're starting to slow down, and that I think all presses on Chinese leadership to do something. Now, the classic thing for states to do in those instances is maybe deflect attention to the domestic problems by focusing on some international problem. And they did that with China in the past and, you know, riled up Chinese nationalism or did it with Japan, sorry, in the past and riled up Chinese nationalism. And I think Taiwan is kind of like the latest thing. And we, I think with Nancy Pelosi's visit, didn't do much to, to ratchet that down. That's right. Right. I think we we're like, oh yeah, you want to you want to you know cause some trouble internationally? Okay, let's send that Nancy Pelosi to Ch- Taiwan. I don't think that that was a great move, you know. Ultimately, in terms of this escalatory thing, I think we have to understand the pressure that Xi's under. Probably domestically, there's a party congress coming up, I think, in no- right. October, November, yeah. where they're gonna. Obviously, he's gonna seek another term. He's pro- undoubtedly gonna get it. The question is sort of what um, what the tone of that discussion is going to be, what the priorities that are going to come out um, of, of that uh, in terms of security doctrine or national strategy stuff. And um, clearly, one China, one China is still going to be the, the controlling policy and how we play in and recognize that. That's the big challenge, I think. Yeah, we've heard the, the U.S. government say, hey, look, our one China policy has never changed. Yeah. But the way the Chinese have interpreted it internationally has changed. Right. And that's where the conflict is coming. Yeah, do you buy that? I mean, you're a sort of a uh, international law scholar as well. Uh, I, I do. I, I, you know, so there are there are a couple of ways for me to read this situation from an international law perspective. I'm looking at the, at the situation and, and, and watching um kind of Greg's comment about it all is going to come down to energy here yeah. and and China's looking to to find some additional energy especially in the current world right as as things are are looking pretty messy and so um, as they start to build islands and and make sure that their exclusive economic zones spread out as far as they possibly can, uh, I think what we're seeing here is a region of the world that was not set by clear beautiful black lines on a map and there was some there were some issues that needed to be dealt with in the post-colonial world in which we were living they were never dealt with after world war ii Mm -hmm. and so china in its interests is is moving in one direction and the u.s is is still playing by a set of rules that uh were developed after world war ii Mm -hmm. and and we're seeing this this kind of 
conflict now. It's also a reason where, you know, international organizations didn't d- develop to the way they did the West. That's you know? right. ASEAN has never really been anything like the EU, no. despite no. aspirations, right? And no. so so the sort of the thickness of, of the re- international regimes and law and organization just hasn't been present. Yep. And uh, it's open an opportunity, I think, for China to try to rewrite it and and then they have the power now to try to do that. And I think that's what they really want to do. Again, it's the spheres of influence thing we get back to. It is. Yeah. And I think that's been a failing of U.S. foreign policy in that region for a long time. Because yeah. I think we've always played with a veneer of institutionalism in that region without ever really looking deeply into those institutions yeah. and how, how those are not very well yeah. developed. Right. One of the things that I think is really interesting, like, I mean, if you, if you, comp- if you look at Russia and China as being sort of the two main challenges strategically for the United States in the world right now. Uh, and we mentioned this, you know, in the green room, quote unquote, before we came in here, I, I mentioned that, you know, Russia in the old days, under the Soviet Union days, the general secretary of the Communist Party, the head of the Russian state and the Soviet state had strong limits on his power and what he was allowed to do. And in Russia today, Putin has no limits on him. Well, those limitations on Xi Jinping are still there. I yeah. mean, there are strong limitations on what he is allowed to do specifically, what he can order. So there's, and China has always been a, a nation that's very strongly, uh, you know, they're focused on mercantilism. <laughs> they they want to do business, and anything that disrupts that is bad for for business. And so they know that a war over Taiwan is a really bad idea. But it's it, and you mentioned it earlier. That's running head on right now. I mean, it's a full on collision with the Chinese nationalism right. that has been stoked by Xi Jinping and sort of the strong nationalists inside the Chinese Communist Party. So, how does this play out? I mean, what do you think, John? First, that's a great question. I, I, I try. I, I, I no, try. No, I think you set that up really well, though, because yeah. the limitations, but the nationalist voice right. are an interesting um, set of set of issues to deal with, Greg. I. Yeah, no, I think we have to, you know, give Xi some kind of win, you know. Uh, He's got to save face somehow. He's got to save face somehow, you know, something that's not too costly for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, maybe it's diplomatic. Maybe it's a stronger recognition of the one China, a clearer articulation that we expect someday to Taiwan to be unified with China. Wh- who's in charge at that point? We don't know, you know, but... Uh, uh, but Chinese nationalism is a new par- part of it. You it know? really is. It really, it really is. Uh, um, ever since you know Deng Xiaoping, it's been hey, let's worry less about the ideology and worry more about the development. We want development first, mm-hmm. and then once you know we've got the factors of production in place, we can think about what our position in the world is now. And I think they got to the point where they're like, well, our position in the world is pretty pretty strong, and now nationalism's playing a role and. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I suppose, something we might have anticipated occurring in some ways, but it does add a dangerous dimension to the to the dynamic because it's not just about making sure China's developing. Now it's satisfying some of their geopolitical goals. Um, yeah, and that's true. They've never really been interested in uh, sort of influencing events around the world, but that has become a significant part of their foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, if you we just talked about it a little while ago, their influence in Africa. I mean, when I got married a little over 15 years ago, uh, my wife and I were in Antigua, and, and you saw Chinese development support being supported down there, roads and bridges yeah, and schools yeah. and hospital clinics and things like that across yeah. uh, across the Caribbean. So yeah. the Chinese have been doing that. They've been trying to render influence around the world. Uh, if you look at China, I mean, there's 
they're trying to influence the world norms, right? We talked a little while ago about this fight, you know, that is now above the table between the liberal democratic order and the rising autocracies. If you look at what's happening inside China with the Uyghurs, uh, mm-hmm. with the crackdown in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. with uh, the social credit score that everybody has and the, the surveillance state that they have created, uh, you know, the liberal democracies, do we want China to write the next set of rules for the international order? And if you look at what they're doing internally in their country, I think there's a lot of concern there. Yeah. So yeah. How, how do we <laughs> how do we ratchet things down, but contain China in a way that doesn't cause them to say we have to lash out? Right. We only have a couple minutes left. Maybe each of you give a, a minute and a half, couple minutes thoughts on this. Well, okay. I don't know. I mean, that's a really good point. I think if I could just bring it back to Russia for just one moment. So if you if we look at just the kind of the balance sheet of these two states and we look at at what things are going to look like moving forward, Russia has demonstrated in its land forces. A real incapacity. Totally incompetent. Yeah, that's that's a nice way of putting (laughs) it. But they have a very large number of nuclear weapons. They do. Yeah. And so we're looking at a state that is going to have very little influence on the ground. And I don't just mean on the battlefield. I mean on the ground economically after this and on the ground politically after this. Um, But they've got that one little wild card. Yeah. Um, China, on the other hand, while yes, its economy has matured to a point where it's not going to be as dynamic in the future as it has been, um, it has capacity to grow in a way that Russia doesn't, it will be shrinking. Yeah. Yeah? And so I think that what we're looking at long-term after, after the Russia, Ukraine settles out long-term is we're looking at the exact question that you just left us with, John. Yeah. It's interesting. The cold war was a contest between two models, right? In some ways. Right. And we wanted to win the propaganda war and the war for hearts and minds over, Hey, you want to be liberal democracy. You want to be in the, in the, in the market system, right? Look at the benefits of being in this world with us. China is offering an alternative world, right? And the Chinese values are less about human rights and democracy and more about just pure economic development. And they're going to drive that in Africa. And, and I think, we need to get back on the, hey, you want to be part of the liberal democratic world. If we're going to win that contest, it's not going to be one that we win militarily, right? We're right. going to have to win it um, in terms of values and and uh, and ideas. And and we're going to have to perform. We're going to have to perform for those countries and, and help them to develop politically and economically. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the uh – the Chinese Communist Party uh, decides to move forward, uh, you know, in China. I mean, there's been a, there's going to be a huge backlash over the the COVID lockdown policies right. that they've had because they have really negatively impacted hundreds of millions of people yep. in, in right. China. Yeah. So that will have an impact. Uh, unfortunately, we are uh, we are right up against the end of our hour today. Uh, we're coming to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Professor Greg Marfleet from Carleton College and Professor Tony Lott from the College of St. Olaf, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thank thanks you. For having us. Yeah. Uh, really, your, your, your time today. This has been a great discussion. I, I, it's been I, fun. There's some great insights here. I, I hope our listeners really enjoyed uh, hearing what you had to say. Tony, what courses are you teaching uh, this fall term? Well, I have a, a, a senior seminar in diplomacy. Uh, so we'll be talking about lots of the issues we just talked about and then a course um, in what is called the Environmental Conversations. So it's a first year program. Ooh. Okay. 
and Greg. Uh, I'm teaching the mandatory methods course for our students um, <laughs> in the statistics, but I'm also teaching a seminar called uh, senior seminar called Form Policy Analysis, which is basically um, a look at how um, internal processes affect the way states act internationally. And uh, yeah, one of the case studies we're going to do is Putin. We're going yeah. to spend a little time about Putin's personality and his belief systems. And uh, so there's been some interesting writing on him. He's certainly a figure that uh, merits some discussion and analysis. So yeah. we'll be doing that. Yeah, there's a huge impact on the dom- domestic policy scene on how nations craft their foreign policy agenda. So, And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. And if you like this show, make sure you tune in to Public Policy This Week every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a great finished year week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.